from PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's Vegetable Garden. I'd like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. I was considered pretty young, 32, when some friends and I started a magazine, Spy. On the other hand, at 44, I was kind of old to be publishing my first novel. It's all relative. I thought about that recently, talking to the wonderful actress Denise Goff on the show. Heading into her late 30s, she was barely making ends meet, thinking of quitting show business, when she landed two big breakout roles, including in a revival of Tony Kushner's epic Angels in America that's about to open on Broadway. Which got us thinking here about other late bloomers, actors and authors and musicians for whom success, or at least celebrity, did not come early. Such as the novelist Toni Morrison. Her 11 novels have won her the Pulitzer Prize, the Nobel Prize, but she didn't publish her first book until she was hard on middle age, 39. When Hilton Alls, the New Yorker critic, guest-hosted Studio 360 in 2014, Toni Morrison was his first choice of interviewee. They spoke at Toni's home, and she started by telling him about her writerly habits. I recently I've been sleeping a little late, like 7.30. That's so. late for you, because you're up at 4 usually. I get up before the light. I want to be there when it... <laughs> mm-hmm. So that's depending on the season. And then I can work. I'm really smart in the morning, you know. You caught me at the edge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm slowing down now for getting dumb and stupid and forgetting. <laughs> but you work in, you still work in the morning. Oh, very much so. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Depending, is it a fixed schedule or is it? I don't, oh, I don't do it every day mm-hmm. because it's not there every day. When I get the first draft, I can work every day. Because it's, it's something to work yeah, on. Yeah, that's right, exactly right. so. But when I'm still, you know, moving it, I started something about a month ago. I have no idea where it came from, but it's infectious. And this kid says, I put the cup on the windowsill to catch the blood. I can't talk. But I hear everything, everything. You sort of, I am excited not only about whatever that plot is, which I think I know about now, Mm -hmm. but I am so excited about writing from the point of view of a mute who can hear. Oh, wow. I am the voice. When I first discovered Toni Morrison's Song of Solomon, I was 17 and it knocked me for a loop. The protagonist reminded me of my father, a black man of some privilege. Recently, I reread Song of Solomon, and I was struck by the friendship between the two male characters called Milkman and Guitar. That deep affection between the two men is something I feel had been missing in literature before Tony wrote it down, and I wanted to know where that came from. The impetus really was that my father died. Mm-hmm. And I had decided to write a story sort of in the area of the pre-civil rights movement. And I thought, 
I don't know a thing about these men. Mm-hmm. I wish I knew what my father knew. Mm-hmm. And when I said that, or thought that, there was this uh, feeling of serenity and confidence and competence, mm-hmm. as though I knew he would let me know. So, of course, we had no <laughs> conversation between the living and the dead. But that serenity that I felt, that I could enter into that world with confidence, happened after I asked that question. Can you tell us a little bit about your father? Yeah, he was born in Georgia, Cartersville, Georgia. And although I never knew it while he was alive, why he left, Mm -hmm. I knew he was about 14 years old when he left. But he had seen two black men, businessmen, lynched Mm. on his street, hanging from trees. So he left. He had a half-brother in California. And then he came where many people were coming. Lorain, Ohio, which was a steel town. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of work there. Mm -hmm. Married my mother. Worked at sometimes three jobs, you know washing cars and doing this and that, until, in fact, the war came. Mm -hmm. A lot of black men and older men got jobs in these factories that probably they would not have before. And I remember the day he got the job and told my mother what the salary was. I think it was $50. Mm -hmm. And she kicked off her shoes. (laughs) (laughs) We were in heaven. (laughs) And that feeling, doing good work, he came home one day and said to me, he was at that time a welder Mm -hmm. at the shipyards, and he said, today I made the perfect seam on the ship. He said it was so perfect that I signed my initials at the bottom. And I said, but Daddy, nobody's going to see it. And he said, but I know it's there. Mm -hmm. And it made such an impression on me about his perfection in work, Mm -hmm. his sense of not display, but just doing first-rate work. Mm-hmm. Good enough for him, mm-hmm. not for the ship or other people, but mm-hmm. his own ideals of what good work was. And that was the satisfaction of his life and most of the men I knew. There's an, another amazing story that I read a, lo- a while back about when you were a teenager and you were cleaning house for this lady, and you said, you told your father, that the work was hard and the lady was mean. (laughs) And your father said... Go to work, get your money, and come on home. You don't live there. You live here. Boom. Separation. (laughs) (laughs) I have never had an employment problem since. (laughs) But one of the things that makes me love both of those stories is that he's telling you that there are limits, limits and heights that you can reach. And, and, And how valuable... Uh, I am, or he was, as a human being, beautiful work, mine. It's beautiful work. It's a perfect scene. Mm -hmm. Uh, Somebody doesn't like you at work. It's not about you. Mm -hmm. You know, you are doing work over there. Your value is that you live here. Yes. 
It's not what somebody's calling you names or saying you don't. The lady was right, you know. I did not know what I was doing. (laughs) (laughs) I had never seen a vacuum cleaner before. (laughs) A stove that complicated, you know. She said, clean the stove. I cleaned the stove, but I forgot the oven. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So I can't blame her. She was fussing. But my feelings were hurt. He just straightened all that out. Go to work. Do your work. Once you were on the other side of being a daughter with your father and so on, and you then were a mother to your boys, the idea of safety, of keeping your boys safe, how did black masculinity look to you then when you were then responsible for these boys in the way your father had been responsible for you? Did you feel the same kind of protectiveness that your father felt toward you and more because you were... I felt frightened. Frightened. Frightened of what could happen to them. Mm -hmm. Uh, I remember being in a house that we were living in then and looking out the window at night, Mm -hmm. hoping to see my son come down the road Mm -hmm. because he was late. I felt uh, I wasn't strong. Spiritually, intellectually, but I thought if something happened, you know, physically, what could physically, you do? what could I do? Every summer, every summer, they went home to my parents and my father and my mother and their cousins. Mm-hmm. So they spent a lot of time in that milieu, mm-hmm. you know, with all kinds of males, um, which probably helped them. But I always felt a sense of regret that I couldn't be two people. Still feel it. Still really? Oh, yeah. Big time. One of the things that I loved when I looked at the photograph of the woman who wrote Song of Solomon, when I bought that book, I think it was $16 maybe? Mm. Something. twelve ninety five or something. <laughs> Long ago. twelve ninety five, <laughs> And I remember I had $20 for the week. <laughs> and I said, that's the week. Oh. <laughs> and I looked at the photo and I said, but I know her. You were every woman I knew in my life who, single mother, oh, yes, yes. had a job, uh. had this other life. One of the things that you said during that period in an interview about Song of Solomon was that you, didn't want, you never imagined growing up being a writer. You wanted to grow up to be a grown-up, an adult. They always knew you were smart in your family. Was there any indication at all that you would be a creator of books yourself? No. They thought, and I thought, that I would teach school. I was 39 years old when I published The Bluest Eye, and it took me five years to put it together because I really was very eager to read it. I wanted to read a book about a vul- the most vulnerable person in society, mm-hmm. female, child, black. Mm-hmm. They're always jokes. They never hold the stage. And I also wanted to write a book about a time when it hurt racism and what, could, what were the consequences of it. Mm-hmm. To take her seriously. But I wanted to read that book, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it wasn't around, so I started writing it, 
in bits and pieces, rewriting it, and then I joined a writer's club and so on and so on. But it was the impulse to know, to to know, to imagine, to have a book like that somewhere. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, I found that when I finished that book, I went very deep into a sadness, and, and I realized that um, I don't really like it around here if I don't have something to write. Mm -hmm. Something to imagine. Yeah, to be in this other, my other free imaginative place. In the years after The Bluest Eye, Tony was recognized as one of the great novelists of our time. When I think of some of the canonical black writers before her, such as James Baldwin, Ralph Ellison, and Richard Wright, I see a big difference in the way Tony imagines male characters. Her men love, and often are loved in return. And that's not something I see in the works of those male writers. I don't know, this sounds sort of sexist. But I think... <laughs> yeah, why not? Why not? <laughs> yeah. I think the male writers feel isolated, mm -hmm. feel separate, feel different. I think the women writers don't. I feel very strongly connected to friends or community. I never felt cut off from, even when I was far away. Mm -hmm. I felt other people and a life in a community or on a street or in a house. Mm -hmm. Even though I've, we used to live in many places, being evicted rather constantly, you get an idea <laughs> of mm -hmm. what home really means. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't know if that's exactly true, but I always felt, like with Invisible Man, I love that book, Invisible Man, but the title says it all. It says, Invisible to Whom? Not to me. Mm -hmm. You know, even when uh, I noticed the rape scenes, for example, mm. in uh, Ralph Ellison, it's terrible, but there is somehow in the language a sense of power, accomplishment. So when I do the rape scene in The Bluest Eye, mm -hmm. I use very feminine language, very supple unproud language. Because what he's doing is not even about her. It's, it's about, about his memory. own the memory of failure. Uh, yes, yes. Of his own, you know, as a kid. Yes. So, you know, it's, I refer to it sometimes as sort of invisible ink where you, you do not the overt, you know, when I was trying to make the reader happy, comfortable, cheerful, when in home, Mm -hmm. I just removed all the color yes. from every place he wasn't, you know, on his way, so that it was so welcoming. And he, he surprises him. Were these trees always this green? Right. And then, you know, trying to find out what color the sun would be mm -hmm. at the very end. Mm -hmm. Here lies a man. So I decided tomato. Mm -hmm. <laughs> tomato red would be the color I would end with. It would mm -hmm. be blood and fruit and nourishment at the end. When you received the National Medal of Freedom from President Obama, how did you feel receiving it from him and being in that space? 
I felt uh, glorious. There was a certain amount of joy and glory receiving mm -hmm. it from him. Mm -hmm. And he, because I was in a wheelchair, sort of. I mean, mm -hmm. I wasn't walking very well. I held his hand out. I took it and pulled me up. And there was this feeling, I, I don't know how this can be interpreted, but the relationship, not relationship, the aura, was as though I was standing next to an older brother. He's, you know, half my age. But if you could understand what that's... I do. I do know An older mean. brother. Yes. He's he had looked out for you. Yeah, he's not going to hurt me. Yes. Um, so you're working on a new book? Yeah, I turned in a book. <gasps> Yay. <laughs> <laughs> That's great news. Yeah. Uh-oh. Well, no, it's... Uh, I love it. <laughs> but it's very different from things I've done before. Um, would you like to talk about your new book at all? <laughs> No, okay. shut up and get, get out. <laughs> what the audience doesn't know is that before you guys tuned in, Tony and I were laughing about, uh, she said that she was very happy to be 80 years old because there were three things that she could say now and not worry about it. One was no, the other one was shut up, and the other was get out. <laughs> Thanks again, Tony. You're welcome. It was lovely. Lovely. That was Tony Morrison and Hilton Alls. Coming up, everybody agrees that The Sopranos ushered in the latest golden age of television, except for The Sopranos' creator. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I just, I, I never, it never connected with me that, I mean, I'm glad. I'm glad there's better shows on. And if I had any influence on anybody about it, great. I try to get David Chase to take some credit. That's next in Studio 360. Studio 360. David Chase is the man behind one of the best and most influential TV shows of all time, The Sopranos. Before that, he spent more than a quarter century bouncing around the television business as a fairly anonymous writer, director, showrunner. He was 53 when The Sopranos went on the air and then became famous. But it turns out that creating the seminal modern TV drama was not David Chase's brass ring ambition. What he really wanted to do that whole time he was in television was to make movies. And in his late 60s, he finally got the chance to direct a feature film, which is why he's the next subject of today's episode about late bloomers. I spoke with David Chase just before the release of Not Fade Away, his film about a group of teenagers in New Jersey in the 1960s who start a rock band and try to make it big. But don't. Chase himself played in small-time rock bands before heading out to Hollywood. He told me about one moment from his rock and roll days that lit a kind of fire under him. I had a conversation with one of the guitar players in my band. We were in a, in a car in the village, 
And he said, I was going to get married. He said, what are you going to do? Were you going to? I said, I think we'll go out to California and go to film school. And he said, well, go ahead. But frankly, I don't think you'll be anything but the drummer in my band ever, which was the most motivating thing anyone ever said to me. I, I owe him everything. Um, and you wrote screenplays. I wrote you? screenplays. None of them got produced. Um, I was very frustrated. And when The Sopranos came along, I had this wasn't my first TV show either, but I never really the ones that I'd created hadn't stayed on the air very long, which I didn't want them to stay on the air very long. But you, you and you had this Emmy-winning, successful career writing for Rockford File and Northern Exposure and all these things. Uh, well, the siren song of the movies was still there. That's what yeah. I had set out to do, and that's what I wanted to do, and I wasn't doing it. And uh, so, that by the time I got to The Sopranos, I was very frustrated, and I just thought, just let it out, just let it all go and see what happens. Because at that point, you were over 50 and decided, I don't need to like struggle just to get the next TV show that I don't care about made? I thought, well, you're going to go on to do other TV shows anyway. Though Someone will hire you, and you'll go on to be a showrunner for this cop or that lawyer. But 52 a... is the Writers Guild early retirement age. You could have gotten out. I didn't know that. Uh, I'm telling you. <laughs> if only you'd known then. We wouldn't have The Sopranos. Right. Given that you're the Sopranos guy, and that will be in the headline of your obituary. I, when is that going to happen? I, I do know, but I can't tell you. Okay. I assume people around you said, oh, you should extend that brand and make some violent, dark movie as your first feature. Some people did. Steve Van Zandt said you should do that. Uh, my friend Terry Winter, who I worked with on The Sopranos, said the same who thing. Makes, who they does Boardwalk Empire. Yeah. They didn't say you should do more Sopranos. But right. They, but we were watching uh, No Country for Old Men, and Terry said, you could do a really good movie kind of like in this vein. And so how come you didn't? I, I didn't uh, have an idea that, I, that was really sufficiently worked out to my satisfaction at the time. When you were starting out in the late 1960s, was there some television show you'd seen that made you think, oh, wow, uh, that's something I could do? No, I was, too, I was too young to think about. I never thought about doing TV, about working in TV. I only went to film school because I wanted to work in movies. Really? You didn't watch The Twilight Zone and said, oh, I can oh, do Oh, I watched The Twilight Zone, but, you know, I was 11 or 12. I never thought, oh, well, I could do that. But I certainly watched it. I watched it religiously. I think a, a show that was very influential to me in TV was um, I Spy was one of them. And, 1963. Uh, yeah. And then uh, obviously, uh, you know, Twin Peaks is a great, is a great, the first season was a great landmark. When, when something like Twin Peaks happened, did you start to think, I may be cynical about this career I've stumbled into, but that shows that great television can get done and maybe, maybe they'll let me do it? All I remember thinking was, you know, being being a bus driver, you know, it was a, all I kept thinking was, wow, how'd they drive that bus? How'd they get that bus on there? Yeah. That's really a cool bus. There. Yeah. Uh, that's all I could think about. Wow, how'd they do that? I didn't think like, well, they've done it once and they'll do it again. Since you always wanted to be a director and now you are a film director, how come you directed so few episodes of The Sopranos? Yeah, just the the running of the show took up so much of my time and the editing be- became very important. So, um I just didn't have the time for it. Between um, working in the in the writers' room, developing story, and then editing the film afterward, I just I, that I love the editing process so much. I spent more and more time in there. And when it became the commonplace thing that this has launched a golden age of television, which is as true as any statement like that can be, uh, how did that feel? Um. Well, I didn't see that um, because when I looked at network television it looked just the same to me I didn't see anything. yeah but The Wire Deadwood oh, Breaking that. Bad um, that's what I mean 
I don't know. I I, I don't know. I just I, I never it never connected with me that it, now I now with more historical perspective I can see where people would say that. But at that time I didn't see it that way. Yeah. No. Now great shows about middle aged guys involved in crime have are essentially the golden age of television. Yeah, they are. Uh, but I didn't I didn't see it that way that, then. Okay. Now you do see it that way. Are you proud? I guess you'd have to call it pride. I mean, I'm glad. <laughs> yeah. Um, that there's better shows on. I'm glad there's better shows on. And if I had if I had uh, any influence on anybody about it, great. You know, I'm I'm glad that I did that too. Yeah. So uh, we announced to our listeners that you were coming on, and and they sent us some questions. May I ask you sure. two of them? Uh, this is from a listener named Lisa Giordano. No, not her. I will not answer any questions for Lisa Giordano. Okay. She says. <laughs> You may, you may take that seriously once you hear the question. I've always been interested, says Lisa Giordano, to know the thinking behind the surname change from De Cesare to Chase. And, and why Chase exactly? Okay. My father came from a family of, I think, 12 children. His mother was a woman named Teresa. She came over to this country when she was, I think, 11 years old and worked in a mill. She met a guy who was much older than her. And married him. She was married by the time she was 15. She had four children with him. Um, it was a loveless marriage, apparently. And a boarder came to live in the house who was, by the time she was 21, the boarder was 17. They began to have an affair. She had um, two or three kids by the boarder who she told the husband were his. But the whole thing fell apart. And his name was De Cesare. And that was the family name. The boarder's name was Fusco. Uh, Fusco. And um, at some point, the the border, Joe Fusco and my grandmother left Providence, Rhode Island with all the kids. And they went to the Italian neighborhood in Newark and they took a uh, a name like Chase just because it would be impossible to track them. Huh. So you didn't change it in order to be successful in show business. It was changed for the, you. I mean, the, like the Tony Curtis name change? Yeah, no, yeah or no. Woody Allen or whatever. No, I was born David Chase. My father, I think, had to ch- I think my father had to go through a lot of stuff legally to get it changed because they were known by the name. They went to school under the name Chase, and it was a problem How getting back. How interesting. That's that's a good story to use somewhere. Well, I know the implication of that question. I know what she's saying. I know what well, she's given saying. that she has an Italian name. Yeah, I know what she's aiming at. Uh, another question from Nimesh Ramasvaram. From his past comments, Chase has always had a love-hate relationship with television. Would he ever create another show? I would say it's like 95%. The answer is no. Not because I wouldn't enjoy it, because I've gotten to like television over time. The love I want to straighten this out. The love-hate relationship I have with television, the hate relationship I have with television, has to do with network television. At the same time, because that's, that's where I worked for so right. long. Right. At the same time, I worked with some of the best people. I mean, the most talented. I learned a lot. I worked with great people. So I, it's not all, it wasn't, I don't have a, a hate relationship. But with cable, it's a whole different thing. Would I do another show? No, only because I've done it. And I've done it for, I don't know, 40 years or so, and that's enough. Yeah. 35, whatever it was. Also, why push your luck when you've created a really good one? Yeah, I don't think I could do it as well, and I don't think I'd have the energy for it. I think I, I put everything into that show. Yeah. I put everything into The Sopranos. I don't know where I'd get more. You're going to make more films, though? I'd like to, yeah. David Chase, thank you very much. Uh, it's really been a pleasure. Thank you. David Chase's first movie, Not Fade Away, came out in 2012. And he recently played himself on an episode of the wonderful TV comedy BoJack Horseman. Kid, how'd you like to be the star of 
untitled, horsing around, knockoff. Me? A star? But I have no experience, no formal training. Hey, you, you don't need any of those things. You got it. Maureen Sestito is not famous, but she listens to Studio 360 on Philadelphia station WHYY. And like David Chase and Toni Morrison, she found that as middle age loomed, she wasn't quite feeling professionally fulfilled. I was 21 when I became a nurse, and it was very exciting and I loved it. But throughout my career as a nurse, I still always wanted to be a doctor. Always. One of the nurses that I worked with, she was in her 30s like me. She had four children. I had two children. And she um, developed a brain tumor. Within three weeks of the diagnosis, she died. I thought, that could be me. And have I really done what I wanted to do? At the same time, I was reading this book, The Unexpected Mrs. Polifax by Dorothy Gilman. The character, Mrs. Polifax, is actually going through some of the same things. She's an older lady. Her kids are raised and gone. She lives by herself. And she's quite empty and quite bored and just says, well, I might as well end it all. And at the back of her mind lay the memory of last Monday, when she'd carried her geraniums to the roof of the apartment building, and had stood at the edge of the parapet looking down, her mind searching for one good reason why she should not take a step forward into oblivion. Mrs. Polifax was at the height of despair, and um, if the situation didn't change, her despair would kill her. So it really struck me. And then she decides to go to her family doctor to see if he can do anything to make her feel better. Isn't there something you've always longed to do? Something you never had either the time or the freedom for until now? Mrs. Polifax looked at him. When I was growing up, oh, for years, I planned to become a spy. <laughs> and the doctor laughed as if she couldn't do that. And Mrs. Polifax wondered why, when she was being her most serious, people found her so amusing. And that's what triggered her to say, the heck with everybody, I'm going to be what I want to be. Two pages later, all of a sudden, she's actually hired as a spy. And it was across those two pages I went, wait a minute, if she can be a spy at 80 years old, I can be a doctor. I'm only 32. And that was it. My nursing degree was so old at that point, there were actually six new elements on the periodic table when I went back to school. So I had to learn everything from the ground up. And I went during the day to school, worked at night, brought up my kids. I was 42 when I started medical school, and I carried this book with me in my bag all the time. At one point in the book, Mrs. Polifax landed in a difficult situation where she was actually kidnapped along with a true spy named Farrell. Now, just how did you land in this? 
he didn't know what to make of her because he was your classic spy. Like if you imagine 007, young, handsome, and here he is tied up with this little old lady from New Jersey. The question startled Mrs. Polifax. She thought to herself, it's true that I haven't the slightest idea what's ahead for me, but I asked for a little adventure and it's precisely what I'm having. One night, we had a patient that was really sick in the ICU. It was 3 o'clock in the morning, and I was freezing and standing on a stool with this big needle catheter going into this woman's chest, and I thought, my hands have such bad arthritis. I really shouldn't be doing this. She felt at once calmed, and unafraid. I don't think it really matters how I got here. That's what I kept thinking when I was doing it. I felt at once calm and unafraid because it didn't really matter how I got there. That's exactly how I felt. And then I did what I had to do. This book, I have actually have bought copies of this book and keep them in my office so I can give them out to people who are having just a really difficult time. I tell them that the journey of life is still very difficult, but that if they don't take the journey, if they just stop and freeze, then where will they be tomorrow? That was Maureen Sestito. Sharon Mashihi produced our story, and Ray C. Wright was the voice of Mrs. Polifax. Back in 1976, Philip Glass was a non-famous composer, pushing 40, unknown outside pretty esoteric music circles, driving a taxi to pay the rent. Then he got his big break with a five-hour-long, essentially plotless opera directed by Robert Wilson and performed twice at the Metropolitan Opera House. It was called Einstein on the Beach, and it turned Philip Glass into a household name pretty quickly. I've been a big Philip Glass fan for most of my adult life, And I finally got the chance to speak with him in 2012. That whole year, he was being honored with concerts and all kinds of events to celebrate his 75th birthday. According to Glass, it's a little exhausting being an icon. The thing is that I mistakenly or cleverly, whatever it might have been, I kept the same writing schedule as if it was a normal year. Yeah. Which meant that I had a hell of a full year. Yeah. But uh, on the other hand... Uh, I was thinking just today, it's it's nice to be, uh, I had to work so hard this year that I had, didn't have any time to think about slowing down. No, that's good. That is good. That is good, yeah. yeah. So, Einstein on the Beach, do you remember the first time you became interested in Albert Einstein? Yes, I do, uh, because it was a, a momentous event in my life. It was, uh, uh, I was born in, in, in 37, so in 1945, I was eight years old. And you were basically growing up during World War II. It was coming World War. Uh, we, we, to we, consciousness. Oh, we saw uh, when you went to the movies on Saturday for maybe twenty-five cents, you saw the newsreels. And after the uh, after the war, 
uh, suddenly the the huge uh, uh, interest in Einstein began about just about then forty six, because people began wondering how did this happen? What does it mean? And Suddenly, there was a tremendous interest in science. And in the, I grew up in, a, in, in Baltimore, which had a wonderful public library called the Enoch Pratt Library. My mother, by, by the way, was a librarian by profession, was a teacher at librarian. So that we all had library cards when we were kids. And every Friday, we went to the library and got our books out for the week. And uh, at the library, they had talks and presentations and guest speakers about Einstein. And then as you were growing up and becoming a teenager, he was in the United States and becoming more and more he celebrated. Was a, he was a, we, would, we, call, we would call him today a rock star. Let's listen to a little bit of Einstein on the Beach. Now, if any of our listeners are wondering what the words are, they're simply saying in that section, one, two, three. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, four. Yeah, that's right. And I was just listening to it, Kurt, and was thinking that if someone had, if it hadn't been written 35 years ago, if someone turned up with that piece today, it would sound absolutely no. Which speaks to the fact that not much has advanced in 35 years? Well, let's put it this way. I think, in fact, that the that, that spirit of experimental work is still around. The generation of, of avant-garde music that preceded my generation had kind of... They were satisfied with obscurity in a way that none of us could imagine. That's interesting. So you, you, you feel that it was... I mean, I, I think of, well, a wider world plucked you avant-gardists out of obscurity, but, but you're suggesting that it was you avant-gardists who wanted... We were this... We were, you wanted to be big time. We were the third or fourth generation yeah, by then. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 and, and, uh, and obscurity was, was, was well, not something you were willing to... Well, look, I wasn't willing to drive a taxi for the rest of my life. Which you did into your 40s. Into my 40s. Yeah. Well, and you were, you essentially are, you and Robert Wilson and others, are the last avant-garde generation for whom that's possible. I mean, it seems as though the idea of the avant-garde became a, a, a null set at a certain point. I think that's true. Uh, there's another odd thing about, there's a peculiar thing about Einstein, which I've just noticed recently. When I was talking with a, a tabla player from India about this, and we were talking about the structure of music. I studied I worked for Ravi Shankar for a long time and studied with him because to work with him is to study with him. There's no difference, really. And um, 
that had a big impact on my music. I would think the biggest. The, yeah, no, uh, Nadia Boulanger, who was uh, also was with whom you studied piano and uh, I studied I studied composition and uh, and harmony and counterpoint. I was with him at the same time. Actually, this was in the mid sixties. And to give listeners uh, a flavor of that crucible, let's play a little bit of Nadia Boulanger on piano, followed by Ravi Shankar on the sitar. But the point is that uh, the rhythmic structure of of Indian music is based on the idea of binary music. It's it's like ones and zeros. Instead of ones and zeros, they use twos and threes. But it's basically the same idea of of of, of you can have an endless stream of of information with two uh, integers, really. So Einstein came. I see that was written 10 years after I completed my studies with with them. And I spent 10 years developing a language which integrated this kind of binary way of thinking with, uh, with traditional harmony. Now, when you're listening to that piece, what you're hearing is binary music. So is it possible that I'm, I, I was anticipated, not I did, but... The, the digital revolution? Well, I would say it wasn't me. I would say that the that global music had anticipated yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. That I, I learned it from India, uh, and but I could have learned it from Africa also. Well, it's interesting. Now that you say, oh, Nadia Boulanger and, and Ravi Shankar were my great influences, it's almost like a... An equation, Nadia Boulanger plus Ravi Shankar <laughs> equals Philip Glass. That's right. In fact, I often described that, those, that the experience of that year. I said it was like having two angels on my shoulder, one on the right shoulder, one in the right ear, one in the left ear. And he said one taught through love and one taught through fear. You I were, assume Boulanger was the fear. Everyone does, and actually that's correct. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and yet, in the end, uh, the methodology uh, mattered not as much as the content. You, you once said that you, quote, had the ability to write music that was so radical that I could be mistaken for an idiot, and it absolutely didn't bother me. <laughs> what, what did people find idiotic 50 years ago? Oh, there was a lot of repetition. Yeah. Well, we know that. Yeah. Well, and that well, was yeah. just like, well, what is uh, it? That's know, all he knows how to do is repeat. You either could hear it or you couldn't. Yeah. It, but it's like, when, I remember when I first walked into the Museum of Modern Art and saw a painting of Frank Stella's, I didn't know what the hell it was. Uh, uh, the language I was used to abstract expressionists. I was used to Pollock and Gustan and all these guys. And suddenly there was someone working in a different way, and I was totally shocked. And I think the, the it's the it's the shock of a new language, and uh, that can that can paralyze you at first. At first, however, I had learned from my father actually that uh, that familiarity can breed love, not contempt. It breeds love. I started listening to your music uh, in my 20s on my Walkman. 
um, and and uh, fell in love with it. And then one of the things that kept me interested during the 1980s and then into the 90s was that you changed. You weren't just doing the same thing over and over. And, and the music became more lyrical, romantic, melodic, accessible, uh, oh, anything, all of those yeah. things. <laughs> all kinds uh, of things. <laughs> um, for instance, I want to play a little bit of your symphony, Heroes, from 1996. How conscious was that transformation from Philip oh, Glass Phase pretty, 1 to Philip Glass Phase 2? It was two? very conscious because uh, uh, when I had my uh, I had met Ravi Shankar and Boulanger at the same time, and that was the beginning of, uh, of an experiment in musical language that produced finally Einstein. Einstein was actually the end of that 10-year period. It wasn't the beginning. The beginning of the next period was Satyagraha, which doesn't at all sound like Einstein. So I said, okay, that I did that, and now that music didn't exactly go away. It it became part of my uh, my musical resource, but it wasn't something that I felt compelled to to. Uh, and the change produce. you think was motivated by oh, I just want to do something new, or people like this just, more, just or? curiosity. Yeah, my public didn't noticeably change for a long time, though. There were a lot of people that came to the Met, and but uh, it was hardly an overnight success after that. It was another 10 years before. Uh, well, it's a, these days, the concerts sell out, but it was a long time before that was a, a fait accompli. Uh, is it true you are now engaged in a, writing an opera about Walt Disney? It is true. And, and do you, what's, your, what's your big idea about Mr. Disney? He's a very interesting guy. He's a man who had a vision that uh, became global. I mean, there's, there's it's no. It's hard to think of a more influential person. It's a very, uh, and then, but the thing that's really interesting, I it was about the death of Disney. Really, it's about the last three months of his life, and the, the conflicts that he has about uh, dying and and thinking. And at one point he says, you know, what, he said, fifty years from now, which is now actually, uh, young people may not know that there was a guy named. Uh, Walt uh, uh, Disney that I'll think is just a company. So that the one he was, that pained him at the same time, he would also say, "Well, the thing that will last will be Disney." So in a way, it's the, it's kind of the it's the it's the one of the main one of the big themes is about the immortality of art and the mortality of the artist. Will you make any musical references to Disney oh, I don't music? Think so. no? no, I can't make any visual ones either. I mean, the property, uh, the artistic property, belongs to the Disney company. There's no question about that. The the the, the man, uh, I think he, he was an, an an amazing American. It's not a whitewash either. The more you find out about a person, the more the humanness of it becomes very moving. To me, that's what the story is. When we elevate our our artists and our our, our geniuses beyond the human level, we lose something. Uh, this is a work of fiction. This is not a documentary. I mean, it's not... <laughs> it's, it's, opera is, above all, it's poetry. When people go to Einstein, they're not going to 
walk away understanding the biography of no they won't understand the biography of, of Einstein and they or won't the nature even, of physics and they won't but no but what they will see whether they uh, they will see some of the things that Einstein thought about which Bob Wilson was able to translate into images I look forward and Philip Glass thank you very much for coming in today I'm very pleased to be here Kurt The Perfect American, Philip Glass's Walt Disney Opera, opened in 2013, and his 11th symphony premiered at Carnegie Hall just last year on his 80th birthday. And that's it for this week's show. But before we go, I wanted to note that one of our producers, Lauren Hansen, has just premiered a new work as well. A baby boy named Siddhartha. Congratulations, Lauren. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our technical director is... Louis Mitchell. Our producers are... Evan Chubb. Lauren Hansen. Sam Kim. Zoe Saunders. Tommy Bazarian. And our production assistant is... Morgan Flannery. I'm Kurt Anderson. Thank you very much for listening. PRI, Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360, The Truman Show was about a man who doesn't realize his whole life is a reality show. Good morning! Morning! The real-life Olympic athlete Kevin Hall has the opposite problem. He sometimes thinks he's starring in a TV show, but it's a delusion. Everything I'm doing is because I'm supposed to do it to make a good scene for the show. The Kevin Show, next time on Studio 360.